Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone here today. We are in uh, part seven of this series and looking at how Jesus fulfills many of the great themes of the Old Testament. And we're focusing on the four great figures that are most quoted in the New Testament, Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David. It's great to have Moses on the platform this morning. Uh, Mo, Dr. Moses Kim makes it a good opportunity to preach on Moses today. This is our second week uh, focusing on Moses. Uh, having uh, Dr. Arnold behind me is a little disconcerting since uh, if I get into trouble, I can just call on him uh, because he's uh, right here with me. I really want to um, ask the question. We, we've obviously, I think we realize that Christ is the fulfillment of the law in the sense that he is the perfect example of obedience, perfect obedience. In that sense, I don't think we need a sermon on that in this particular community. But I do believe that the, the other side of the question, in what way do we relate to the Old Testament law? How do we as Christians regard the Old Testament law? In what way does Christ stand as a new lawgiver? Is something which is very, very important to us to address this morning. What is our relationship to the Old Testament law? This is surely a great challenge. On the one hand, Paul says in Romans 7, 12, and in 1 Timothy 1, 8, the law is righteous, holy, and good. The church, of course, throughout its history has used the Ten Commandments, along with the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed, as the foundation for all Christian catechesis of new Christians and children being brought up in Christian homes. On the other hand, Hebrews 8, 13 says the new covenant has made the old covenant obsolete or soon to disappear. Galatians 3.24, Paul says the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ, but now that Christ has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. Paul says, on one hand, we have died to the law. In another place, he reiterates that we are the law is spiritual, and if anyone doesn't call it good and spiritual, may it never be, he says. So this has always been a challenge for the church. And I think if you are a Protestant Christian, and particularly an evangelical Protestant Christian, kind of the narrative that kind of at least lightly, if not heavily, rests upon us in terms of how the average person talks about this is often explained in what is called covenant theology. Now the Old Testament, you must say it that way, by the way, the Old Testament is a covenant of works. And the New Testament, you must say it that way also, you know, the New Testament is a covenant of grace. And this is kind of the, uh, it's, a dialect, it's a tension between the bad, the law, which condemns you, only function is to drive you to the cross, and the New Testament of grace, where we meet Christ and the wonderful truths of the gospel. Uh, you know, if you really drive that wedge really, really deep, you get into the, the deeper level of Marcion, good old Marcion, second century. We've been trying to run him out of here for years now. But Marcion, uh, you, he still sticks his head up when people say things like, oh, that's the God of the Old Testament. We worship the God of the New Testament. Marcion's the one that, one that had the courage to say, you know, we think there's two different gods here, okay? The church politely sent him out the door. <laughs> but it still keeps his head up. And this, in turn, creates all kinds of questions like, you know, what part of the law do we have to carry? You know, the, traditionally, the, the Old Testament law contains 613 laws. 
And so the question kind of is like, of those 613 burdens, which ones do we have to carry? See, all of this is there. We lose the kind of grand narrative. Now, one advantage I have in teaching at Asbury is that I teach world religions. Uh, my PhD is in Hinduism, which is why Bill Arnold should be preaching this sermon and not me. <laughs> but here I am. But one of the advantages of teaching Hinduism is that my students walk into my class and they're basically blank slates. They don't know anything about it. So I can kind of build the whole thing properly. The problem that Dr. Arnold faces and other professors here is that you actually think you know certain things. <laughs> and so a lot of the semesters spent, spent what I call deleting files. So you can actually build it properly. And so in some ways, uh, this is what my task is today. I really hope and pray I can delete a couple of files that need to be deleted in your mind. Because, now, by the way, I don't want to undermine the Reformation kind of emphasis, because a lot of this arose as a conversation of the Reformation, which was trying to restore justification by faith. And therefore, they tended to talk about the law in certain ways in order to bring out you know, the truths they needed to bring out. And I praise God for what they had to bring out for us. They are, they are God's gifts to us. But they were fighting very different battles than we're fighting. You know, they were fighting works righteousness. We're fighting moral chaos. You know, they're fighting for the restoration of faith, the restoration of God's grace. We're in a context where the judgment of God is unheard of and grace is a presumption. And so we're just in a different kind of climate. And so as today's Christian, we have to come around and see how this might be looked at differently. And this is where Wesley is a great gift to the church. Because John Wesley, one of the greatest things that happened to us was that he was born in the 18th century. It means that he had 200 years to, I mean, he didn't have 200 years, but by virtue of his birth at that time, he could look back and see the fruits, and he does love the fruits, but also the pitfalls of the Reformation, things that need to be kind of extended deeper and brought further along the way. And that's what he does on this point. So we begin by the Deuteronomy text that was read, Deuteronomy 18.15. Now in that text, Moses makes this beautiful statement, which of course Peter picks up on the book of Acts, when he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own, from your brothers. You must listen to him. Now that becomes a very important messianic expectation text in the book of Deuteronomy. That's why Peter quotes it in Acts 3. Now when that happens, this set into motion a Jewish expectation that may be a little different from our thinking of how they understood it. Yes, they understood that the Messiah would perfectly obey the law and, and fully embody it in righteousness. Definitely they get that. We get that. But they also saw that the Messiah would be a new Moses. He would be a lawgiver in the way that Moses was a lawgiver, a new lawgiver. That's what Moses was for them. He was their lawgiver. And so they took this text and say, we're looking for one of the ways that we'll know the, the, the Messiah is here is that the lawgiver will return, a new lawgiver. Now they also linked it, interestingly, to another idea, which we don't see in Deuteronomy, but the idea that the way you'll know that he is here is that he'll reenact the miracle of the manna. Because that, of course, was the other great authenticating mark of, of his ministry, Moses' ministry, was the miracle of the manna. 
And so the idea was that if that happens, then you'll know the great lawgiver has returned, the new Moses is here. They, most people believe that this was linked to Isaiah 25, 6 to 9, where you have this beautiful passage about this rich mountain and the rich food and the banquet that will be spread by the Messiah and that messianic text from Isaiah, which eventually ends by saying, and he will abolish death forever. It's a really great text. We read these texts, maybe eschatologically, maybe the merits over the lamb, all that, which is, I'm sure, true, but the Jews saw it as the manna is going to be reenacted. This is why, by the way, I mentioned this, by the way, back in the spring of 2012. So if you're on the long plan, you might remember that uh, I did point out that the, the, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, it's the only miracle in the public ministry of Christ that's in all four Gospels. All right? So it means it's really important because they saw the feeding of the 5,000 as the reenactment of the miracle of the manna. And so this becomes one of the ways that Christ's messianic fulfillment is validated and signified by the early church. But it really comes to us in the, the, Mark, the Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. Now, everything resonates with, the, with a kind of a reflection of Moses. Moses climbed Mount Sinai. Jesus climbs a mountain in Matthew 5. Mount Arbel or wherever, whatever mountain he climbed. We don't know which one for sure he climbed. Uh, Moses spoke, speaks to the 12 tribes. Jesus speaks to the 12 uh, apostles. Uh, they, they, they're seated for instruction, which is the way Moses would, would be seated for instruction. All of these things are reenacting that Christ is once again giving us the new law, the new ethos of the kingdom. Now, this Matthew text, which is beautifully read, but wasn't actually the text I had intended, so I want to read it to you. This is the text, Matthew, not 7... 17, but 517, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke, that's the whole jot and tittle thing, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He goes on to say, if you break the least of these commandments, you will not see the kingdom of heaven uh, if you keep these commandments, you will. You'll be great in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the law of the Pharisees and the teacher of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So in what that way does Jesus fulfill but not abolish the law? And what does that mean for us who are called to live in Christ? Our primary identity is being in Christ. Now what Christ does in the following text, in verse 21, he takes two of the Ten Commandments that were read earlier. He could have taken all ten. He could have taken, you know, more than two, but two are representative of the whole table to give you the kind of thing that happens under the ethos of the kingdom. He takes, as you know, you shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. He says, okay, you have heard it said you should not commit murder, but I say unto you, you should not be angry without a cause against your brother. Now, murder, of course, is an outward act of the body done in physical violence against another person and therefore can be adjudicated by law. We see it all the time in our society. But if I have anger in my heart toward you and I don't display it in any physical act, 
I just have anger in my heart towards you. I have bitterness towards you. Jesus says that that violates the ethos of the kingdom. All right? So Jesus takes what, you know, the reach of the law, which comes into us, and, and to this day we see law regulating physical behaviors, but there's a certain point where law cannot adjudicate, right? There's no law in the world that can adjudicate what is in my heart. Jesus gets to that point. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Adultery is a physical act where a man or woman breaks the covenant they made with their wife or husband. It's a physical act. It can be adjudicated as such. Divorce proceedings are built around those kind of things. But Jesus says, I say unto you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Now, how can that be viewed as abolishing the law? This is taking the law and it's, it's, it's putting into us in an even deeper way. This is deepening the law, right? It's pretty obvious. Jesus is saying that kingdom is going to make something possible that the law never did. It doesn't throw the law off. It deepens it. The law is not being swallowed up in some kind of easy sea of grace. If you do not have lust in your heart, then a commandment that says, do not commit adultery, has no power over you. And in that sense, and by the way, in only that sense, is the law dead. The law is dead because you've been set free by the ethos of the kingdom. It is not any remotely bringing us into some kind of sloppy agape, easy grace. That is not what's there. Then he goes on, and, and Jesus actually spends, and it's almost a little surprising he does this compared to what we might expect, he spends even more time dealing not with the, how we dealt with the law itself, you know, directly like adultery and murder, but he takes seven examples, that's a lot, seven examples from popular practice of his day that the Pharisees and Sadducees practiced. And what he shows is that in every case, they actually had created little ways to, quote, keep the law, but allow their heart to manifest all kinds of wickedness. And so Jesus takes a lot of time from Matthew 5.31 to 6.18 to expose this one by one. He takes uh, divorce, oath-taking, the lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, the Pharisees' interpretation of Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself, uh, giving to the needy, prayer and fasting. And he goes, he goes right down the list. That's the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, mostly. He says, okay, uh, you have worked out this strange interpretation about divorce from this certificate of divorce, which had nothing to do with permitting a, a, a divorce, and turned into an easy divorce. So Jesus takes them all the way back to the garden and reestablishes the whole original divine primordial sacrament of marriage. The second point, this whole legal distinction where they say, well, if you swear by that, it counts. If you swear by that, it doesn't count. He's like, no, 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 that's legalism. Your word is your word. I mean, this is, Jesus is absolutely, this is Jesus with a sword out, just whack, whack. And we're good at all this, and we can read these things like, oh, yeah, look what they did. But, you know, we, we love this kind of stuff. And you know, we can always find ways to get around God's word. You know, eye for eye, tooth for a tooth. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Wow. He deepens it. Love your neighbor as yourself and hate your enemy. And, boy, we have a lot of ways to narrow who we call our neighbor. 
Only these people can we love. Everybody else we can hate. Jesus says, no, no, no. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good, good to those who insult you. See, this is, this is a, a whole new kingdom ethos breaking in. This is Christ is the new Moses. This is a whole new promulgation of law that we can't even imagine. The law of love. They gave to the needy. Turns out they only gave. They didn't care a thing about the needy. They gave to be noticed. Jesus, give so no one knows. May your left hand not know what your right hand is doing. Think about that. They pray, but it turns out they actually didn't really want to pray. They wanted just to be seen to be praying. So Jesus, go into your inner closet and pray there. They wanted to fast, but they weren't really wanting to humble themselves before God. So Jesus cuts to the heart of the whole thing. You know, when you fast, anoint your face. Put a smile on your face. Don't want anybody to know you're fasting. They just want to be honored because, oh, I'm fasting today. Of course, we don't have that problem. Other people have that problem. All of these things are there. So the whole law is, is getting penetrated into the heart. Now, when Julie and I were raising our children, who are now 30 and 28, uh, we had several examples that maybe you can uh, appreciate, where one of the children uh, abused the other child in some way. You know, they said something or hurt them or feelings, whatever, to the point that we needed to exact an apology. So we told our oldest, our boy, Jonathan, you need to go in and tell Bethany you're sorry. That was a little, a lot of resistance there. He got puffy. He's only this high. You know, he's determined, not going to do it. Jonathan, you must apologize to Bethany. So Jonathan comes in. He stands there, you know, and he does how it goes. I'm sorry. All right. <laughs> Have you ever had that experience? It's like the outward you know, it hasn't penetrated the heart yet, but this is part of parental catechesis. You know, you first, yes. you work on the outward, you know, and eventually get to their heart. And I, we were satisfied with that, you know. Righteousness was satisfied that day. It was, it was granted, Old Testament. We weren't quite in gospel yet, but we were there. We were <laughs> on our way. And today, so you won't think my son's an ogre, our Jonathan and Bethany love each other. They actually love each other. And today, he would be willing to give her a big hug and say, Bethany, I'm so sorry. Right from his heart. And Bethany to Jonathan. Some, something happened in their hearts. And it starts with that. The clear message of the kingdom is that the law of Christ penetrates to the core of our being. That's why Christ can say, if you love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself, then what's the point of the law? That you, once you have that, you see, you've gotten to that point. All the other things, you're free from that. It's only in the reductionistic Christian world which equates salvation with justification that such a kind of view of law is allowed to, to, to grow in the church. We have to address that. I think many of you uh, might be like I was when I was a young Christian. I had trusted in Christ for my salvation. I believed in Christ and the work of the cross as much as anybody. I'd repented of my sins, asked Christ in my life. But I was like, to kind of use an analogy, I was like an elephant without a trunk, and maybe even without any ears. 
Now, if you take an elephant without any trunk or ears, it's still an elephant. But it's a kind of a weird elephant. <laughs> the distinguishing marks are not there. I mean, I want to see the, you know, the ears and the, you know, the, the trunk. And so in the, in the Christian faith, and this is, again, one of, the, one of Wesley's great points, it's, an, it's one thing to be justified by Christ, but you've got to keep going, and the Holy Spirit must fill you with his spirit, must empower you with God's grace, and must transform your heart, what, what Leslie called the redirected heart. If you have that, then, then you get the whole thing. The salvation is the Trinitarian work of God. That's the, what's actually coming out here. That's why we have the, the implications for this are extraordinary when you realize what it means for us to be Trinitarian Christians, where we've been sanctified, set apart, our hearts have been redirected. This has implications for us, both for the our view of the church and the mission. As the people of God, we are now joyfully under the law of Christ. We are, we are delighted to live under the ethos of the kingdom. If they slap our face, we joyfully turn the other cheek. If they demand we get, they give us a tunic, we give them our cloak as well. If someone says, go with me one mile, we will go with them two miles. And that is about joy and freedom, not doubling up on the law's demands. Something has happened in your heart. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, also wrote a beautiful poem, which to me captures the whole sermon in one little poem. This poem goes like this. To walk and to run, the law demands but gives us neither feet nor hands. Okay, to walk or to run, law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. You see, the, when the gospel comes, it only bids us to something, an ethos, the kingdom so much greater than the law, could have imagined, but gives us wings to do it because of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. That's the great insight. Bill Arnold has made a great observation to me that, that when you look at the Old Testament, it's a great point, and you see it only as statutory law, forensic. It becomes negative. You don't see it as God's gift. It's, it's God's admonition, his catechesis. It is, it's his wisdom literature to us to give us a great insight into his love for us. Torah means instruction, after all. God instructing us how to live because he loves us. And I, I love this with Psalm 119. And we had Psalm 19 read because it's shorter. Uh, but my wife and I, if you know, Julie and I, we're, we are avid psalm singers. And we, I can't go through a day without singing a psalm. So we, we this is, I think it must have been the 119th day of the year, we sang Psalm 119 because we sing one a day. And we, this was like last week or so. So Psalm 119, normally we break into five days, because Psalm 19 has like almost 300 verses. So we said, uh, you know what, let's sing Psalm 119 you know, in one sitting. Let's just sing the whole psalm. So we did that. It took about half an hour to sing Psalm 119, in case you're interested. <laughs> I was late for work that day. No, it's beautiful, Tom. So we, we, but what you find in Psalm 119 
is he takes these seven or eight Hebrew words and he keeps turning, you know, the diamond to look at the, all the beautiful facets of God's word, his law, his precepts, his statues, his commands. And he just, the whole psalm exudes the joy of the whole thing. It's greater than wine. At one point he said, it's greater than gold. It's greater than honey on the honeycomb. I mean, he's, you can't miss the unbridled joy of the whole thing. And my favorite is where he says, he was a, had a sleepless night. He was awake in the middle of the night. Now, I don't know about you, but normally, my wife will testify, when my head hits the pillow, what happens, Julie? I'm out. I mean, night, I'm before my head, the pillow fully compresses to that point where you're, the weight of your head, I'm asleep. This is one of the things that happens to me. But if I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't go back to sleep, that is miserable. I mean, it's misery. And I lay there, I think, oh my goodness, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, you know, I've got budgets to, to, to balance, I've got this, i got 25 phone calls to make and 10, 10 letters, and, uh, and I start getting worked up, worked up, worked up, worked up. And then you wake up, I've got to get some Tylenol PM, you know, or something, I've got to get back to sleep. And so I really felt the conviction of God when I read, when I read that part of Psalm 19, where he has the same experience. He can't sleep at night. And you know what he says? Oh, this is great. I have time to meditate on God's law. My Lord, I want that. I want that. Don't think for a moment that the gospel takes away that joy by turning the law into some kind of ogre, you know, that's high, like a troll beneath the bridge ready to hop on you and throw some kind of yoke of guilt on your life. That is not how we should approach the Old Testament law. Delete the file. Delete the file. The covenant of works, covenant of grace, delete the file. Every action of God, every covenant of God is an act of grace to God, right? There's no joy that surpasses holy living. And we're now captivated by the law of love. Make me a captive, Lord, that him summed it up, summed it up very, very well. Now, obviously, we are under the new covenant. We're like a GM worker. You know, once you have your new covenant or your new contract, you're not, really, you're not going back and looking at the old because you realize that this is the one that binds us. But everybody understands that you're, the, so much of that contract is brought over to this contract. Because the point is that it's the same God. It's the same heart of God being revealed. You must see the heart of God in all of it. So rather than talking about, you know, well, if someone says, well, we don't worry about the law that says don't plant your field with two kinds of seeds and all that, but okay, it's fine. That doesn't appear in the New Testament. But don't miss God's heart for the people in giving them those kind of legislations. I mean, I, it's because I, I don't want you to bow down to the, the gods of, of, you know, of the fertility gods that like to marry their seed Know that I'm the God of creation. That's as good for any Christian as well as any finding the Old Covenant. Every, every law, all 613, come out of one thing, God's love for his people. And if they don't apply to us today, it doesn't change the fact this is God's heart in all of this. So for the church, we embody the great work of God. The second part of this uh, application has to do with the mission, our mission in the world. 
We've been taught, this is the other file you have to delete, we've been taught to see the world through a lens of condemnation. So we're taught, because of the law, the law has condemned everybody, everybody's guilty, everyone's going to hell. Okay, trust me, Wesley accepted that. The point is, is that their last word? Because this, this is the problem. If we only rehearse that story, that the whole human race is under condemnation and the law has made us, rendered us all guilty and we, we are powerless to do anything. In fact, Paul says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, that's not checked. Dead people can't do anything. Dead people can't do anything. So what do, what do, how do you deal with that fact? That if you are dead, how do you respond to endless admonitions in the gospel to unbelievers to do things, to turn, to believe, to confess, to repent, and on and on it goes. Wesley says, the whole layer of condemnation is there. But God has not forgotten even the unbeliever. Even, the, yes, me before I came to Christ. God had already met me with prevenient grace. God has enabled me to actually hear the gospel. I may reject it. That's still there, of course. People reject the gospel. People still go to hell because they reject the gospel. But I'm enabled to hear it now. That means that as the church lives out the gospel and bodies the ethos of the gospel, they see the law of Christ breaking in joyfully into our marriages, our thought life, our relationships, our work ethic, our attitudes, our gratitudes. And they say, wow, something compelling has broken into the world. Our very lives become evangelistic summons to a lost world to come into the ethos of the kingdom, the rule and reign of God. Isn't that great? Now, we have an ethos that says, when someone comes to the church, it should be absolutely seamless from the world. You don't want any interruptions. I mean, you want them to walk into your midst and say, you know, wow, you're just like us. You know, it's just like we're Starbucks with an overhead projector. <laughs> Our worship services. You know, it's like it's, everything is seamless. This is just like, you're just like us. I want them to walk into our midst and say, oh my goodness, you're nothing like us. I want them to walk into our midst and say, oh my goodness, these people are obviously, they're not living by Fox News or CNN. they got a whole other ethos they're living under. They're not living under the ethos of the kingdom. Something new is at work in these people. That's what happens, the shockingly distinctive work when Christ gives us the ethos of the kingdom and the wisdom of God, the law of Christ, the love of Christ as the new lawgiver. That's what Wesley meant actually by entire sanctification. He sees that your heart being turned to the love of Christ means that all of the law can now be fulfilled because now we're in Christ in ways that were not possible before. So Christ becomes the new Moses. There's only one grand narrative of redemption. There's no Sermon on the Mount if the law of God had not thundered down on Mount Sinai. There's no Christ on the cross if the Red Sea had not parted. There would be no Eucharist if manna had not come down from heaven. There's no Church of Jesus Christ if there had been no temple in Jerusalem. There's no grace of God without the law of God because law is an expression of God's grace and grace has no meaning apart from the great moral framework of God's holiness.
So thanks be to God that Moses actually prefigures Christ as God's greatest lawgiver, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen.